We are in week seven of what we're calling Seize the Moment. This is a series where we are going uh, line by line through the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm getting a lot out of this. I'm very encouraged by it. My prayer, my hope is that you are as well. Uh, And so this is a letter that Paul uh, wrote to the church at Ephesus, and in writing this, uh, uh, he is writing to a group of people who are believers, okay, and they're doing a good job. And that's, that's important for us to understand here because not every letter that Paul writes, not every time that uh, uh, he's kind of uh, putting information out there is he writing to a group of people who are doing it well, right? Uh, but sometimes that is the case. And it's the same for, for, for instruction from God, right? Like we tend, to, we tend to kind of gravitate into the, oh, well, they were doing it wrong and look at the correction that God brought. Like that, those, are the, those are the stories we tend to kind of gravitate toward, right? Uh, but, but some really important elements of Scripture are times when the children of God are doing it well and, and yet there's something to be said, Right? And uh, so the first half of this letter is really an exhortation, right, to the believers. It's an exhortation to uh, the way that they are living, and it is letting them know uh, that Paul is praying for them, that he's encouraged by them. And, And my big encouragement for you guys through this first half of this series has been this idea that don't just pray for people who are at the rock bottom in total need and desperate, you know, it's like, like if if God doesn't show up, it's all going to fall apart. Like those are moments for us to pray for people, right? So if we meet somebody and they're a destitute and they need God, definitely we can be praying, but we can also be praying for people who are in a good place where the, where, where they, where their needs are being met. We can be engaged in prayer for those people as well. And that's something Paul is modeling here. He's also modeling this idea of speaking blessing over people, right? And that's, that feels weird in our culture to just be like, you know what? May the Lord bless you today, right? That's just not language that we use, but it is language that the, that the Christian church uses around the world even today. Uh, I've shared the example of being in Kenya and our friends there. Uh, when, we're, when we're traveling around the country, believers come up all the time and they say, greetings, brother. May the Lord bless you. May his love be on you. Like, it's just a constant form of communication that they, that they offer, that they extend. And Paul does that. So there's some, there's some, there's some, some things that challenge us right there. And, and Paul makes a shift here in, uh, this, in this letter. And, and most scholars agree that this is really divided into two parts. And so uh, today we're going to be jumping into Paul laying out uh, some doctrine uh, of the church uh, for unity, right? And so, again, not, and this is, I I wanna make sure that I, I express how important this is. He is not giving them instruction out of a position of rebuke, but out of a position of warning, okay? So, so, there, I guess the way to explain this would be like, and, and probably a little oversimplification, but I think it'll make sense. It's like if my kid is playing in the middle of the road, right, I bring rebuke and pull them out of the road and say, this is not safe, right? Now, hopefully, though, I've been invested in their life and been able to speak to them before they got to the road and explain to them 
why the road is an unsafe, the highway is an unsafe place to play, okay? So there's warning, right? Like, hey, you haven't done this, but I just want to let you know this could happen. And this has really been the, the manner in which uh, my wife and I have raised our kids, right? We have said, hey, look, here is the reason why when we're at a store, you can't just go wandering off by yourself because there are bad people who do bad things, right? Instead of waiting until somebody has one of my kids in their clutches and is running out the door and then I have to stop them and say, hey, don't, don't wander off because this is what could happen, right? So, so, so this sets a precedence, I think, for us in the church on why it's it is important to talk about things that may not, that may not be, you, you may be thinking like, what does that have to do with me, right? But there are warnings that, of things that could happen, okay? And so it's, it's perfectly acceptable to engage in conversations that are relevant based on what the world is experiencing, right? Okay, these are topics that are culturally relevant, but they, they may not be impacting the church locally because maybe the church is in a really healthy place, but not to be naive and to just think that, well, whatever we do is going to be okay. So, so that's kind of what's happening here. And so I titled today's message, The Church, A Secret Society. Okay, and why would I call it a secret society? Because as we dive into this doctrine around the church, this is what somebody who is not a believer, they look at it from the outside and they're like, I don't understand all of the things that you do, right? But when you're in the church and you begin to engage in the word, you begin to engage in prayer and worship, all of a sudden you begin to understand these things. And so it very much can feel like a secret society. When I was a kid, my granddad was a Mason, right? Um, and, 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 and that can strike whatever chord that wants with you. I really don't know all of the conspiracy theories that go around it, but you know, National Treasure uh, uh, with Nicolas Cage uh, let us know that you know, they secretly had a bunch of gold in the basement why they lived the way they did, I don't know, but possibly. Uh, but my granddad was a Mason, and so we would go uh, to these family weekends uh, with them where we would go and they would have a big spaghetti dinner. And then when uh, we were done eating, they would make all the family leave and they would have some meeting behind closed doors, right? And I was always like, I called my granddad Paul Paul. Um, that lets you know I'm from the South, okay? In case you were ever wondering, uh, Paul Paul. What were y'all doing in there? Oh, I can't tell you that, right? Well, why can't you tell me? Because it's secret. And I was like, well, why is it a secret? Well, because I made a pledge not to tell anybody, right? And it's like, I still to this day have no clue. I really don't care, okay, at the end of the day. Uh, this is the thing about the church, right? Is it really operates in this way of like a secret society, but not because anybody inside the church is trying to keep it a secret, right? But because people don't show up, they don't know, and then they just go, well, it doesn't make sense. And so Paul begins to lay out some of the kind of expectations for how the church is to operate. So let's go into Ephesians chapter 4, beginning here in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So interesting thing, and I, I find this interesting that Paul really consistently uses this type of language when describing himself. He says, uh, I therefore a prisoner of, uh, a prisoner for the Lord. Th the thing is, is that, and this is true today, people love titles, okay? And, and it wasn't, it's not just true today, it has been 
for as long as there's been humanity, like we love titles, we love to be in positions where it's like, just in case you didn't know, I'm more important than you are, right? And uh, I was watching, uh, uh, I watched really nerdy, dorky stuff all the time. I watch lectures and, uh, you know, like three or four hour long lectures. And I was watching a lecture recently and they were introducing the guy and the guy, they said, hey, we're just thankful that we're introducing you here in the United States because uh, the formality is only to list your highest title. But if we were introducing you in England, we would have to put all of your titles out there. And because the guy had like eight PhDs, he would be doctor, 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 doctor. And uh, I thought to myself, man, that is like, like we love titles, right? And so, so this guy unwittingly, right, did not have to introduce the guy that way, but he still introduced the guy that way, right? Right? He goes, I'm just glad that we're not there where we would do this, and then he did it, right? Um, and I'm not, I'm not downing that because, you know, to get some of those titles is a lot of work, right? And with those titles tend to come levels of responsibility that are un, unlike the types of responsibilities maybe you and I have. So I'm not trying to down the title, right? But when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, Paul does not run to titles, right? Um, Paul is actually committed to an office. And so he wants to make sure that people understand that, that the office is the thing that's important, not the title. In fact, as I even wrote that out, I thought to myself, he's really not committed to an office. He is submitted to an office, right? The, there is an office that outlives him. It is a role that, that God has ordained, and, and he is submitted to the qualifications and the expectations that come with it. So he's actually going to lay some of that out for us in just a moment. So he says that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And what's interesting is that at this time when he's writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, he is quite literally a prisoner. He has been imprisoned in Rome because of his faith, the desire that they have is that he'll renounce the faith. Remember, he's a Roman citizen, so they can't just discard him like they could somebody else, right? He has certain rights, and he is also extremely educated. He was a Jew among the Jews, okay, until he became a Christian. And then, of course, even in his faith and walking out this new role that God had for him, uh, living under this office, he continued to meet Christians who knew who he was, and they were afraid of him, right? Why? Because Paul was a part of a group of people that killed Christians, and so he still has this kind of stigma with him, and now he is in prison in Rome. Now, what does this word prisoner mean? Well, in the Greek, it is, it is one to, who is bound or is a captive, right? So when he says a prisoner for the Lord, right, he says that I am bound, I am captive, not by the Lord, but for the Lord. So he says, I'm okay with being in this position. I'm okay with the fact that the office that God's called me to means that in this season, I am bound, I am a captive. And look at what he says. He says, he says that I, therefore, a prisoner for the, for the Lord, 
urge you. So uh, thinking about this, I was looking at the Greek, and I thought it was kind of interesting, this word urge, uh, when you look at it in the Greek, is actually the first word. So a lot of times when we're translating uh, for it to make sense to us, we have to put it into an American or English sentence structure, so the words kind of get shifted around, which is, there's, there's no malice there. It helps us understand. And just so that you have another little bit of clar- clarity here, translations are perfectly acceptable. Why would I make that argument? Because Jesus uh, himself quotes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So Jesus sets a standard for us. Translations are not a problem as long as they are faithful translations. But this word urge is actually the first word in the sentence, and it means to call near, to invite, to invoke. And so Paul is beginning this thing by saying, I I need you to come in and hear what I'm about to say. I, I need you to get a hold of this. I need you to join with me in this. And what is it? It is, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is one of those words that's really tricky in the Greek because it literally means walk, but it is different from just like walking and chewing gum. It is, when we look at it in the Greek, it actually breaks down to deport oneself, to tread around, to live. These, are, these, these definitions all feed into this idea of walking, right? That I am moving myself in a direction, and that is a part of the way that I am doing life. And so what does he say? He says that I, you need to do this in a manner worthy of the calling to which not I have been called, because he says that my calling has me a prisoner, okay? But it needs to be worthy of in, uh, of the calling to which you have been called. You need to tread around. You need to live life. So every time that you're reading this word walk throughout the remainder of this letter, remember that it is more than just going for a stroll, right? Okay? It's, it's, not, it's not just a strut that, that you know, defines you. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but, you know, during the, the time of COVID where we were wearing masks everywhere we went, software developers began to have to try to figure out, well, you know, we can't use facial recognition right now because of masks. And so there had been this other technology that wasn't as popular, and it was a technology that measured and, and looked at your stride, how you walked, because apparently your walk is unique to you, just like a fingerprint is unique to you. Uh, The way that your hips rotate, the height of each step, the distance of your stride, all of those things, and that they can measure that with a computer. And so just as easily as they can use facial recognition, they can actually look at your gait and how you walk, and they can go, this is who this person is. And so they were beginning to use this type of technology to identify people even when they had their masks on. So, So your walk is really it's really telling a lot about who you are. And this is what I thought interesting in one of the commentaries. It said, walking is the moral action and conduct of life. So when we think about walking in the reference of how Paul is using it, it is the moral action, the the thing that you're doing, and the conduct of life. So is the stride that you have a stride of conformity? 
right? And you can conform, listen, you can conform not just to the things of the world, right? Whatever the world is saying is the thing to conform to today. And, and, and people do that, right? Hey, I don't want to rock the boat. Whatever they're saying, that's what I'm going to do. Is that your stride? You can conform inside of Scripture. You can not have a lot of faith and go, yeah, I mean, I believe that you know, Jesus and the whole things, but I don't want to rock the boats. I just kind of do what they do. I go to church on Sunday. I sing when the songs are going. I take notes when the pastor's preaching. But, but, but is conformity your stride, right? Or is complacency your stride, right? Are you, are you just like not very active when it comes to living, when it comes to your walk, right? Do you just go, eh, again, I don't want to rock the boat, but I don't want to show up, so I just kind of just stay out of everyone's way? Well, Paul's going to actually lay out what this walk looks like for us. So verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, he's going to lay out a series of adjectives that describe for us how we are to live this life. And here's the problem with verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. The church becomes, believers become divided, and some grab on to the first half of those 16 verses, and they go, oh man, I'm all about the humility and the gentleness. And then the, the, there, we're going to get into speaking truth in a moment, and another group of people come in and go, we've got to speak truth no matter what, you know, and I don't have to be nice about it. And so what ends up happening is something that's supposed to be connected, right, becomes itself divided. So Paul is laying out, this is where we would call doctrine. This is where we're, it's an ex, a theological expectation. Here's how we operate. So with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So what is humility? Humility here is lowliness of mind. Humility is not your action. It's, it's, it starts here, right? You can have a false humility and know exactly how to act and what to say to kind of personify humility. Humility is actually something that is happening inside of you. It is lowliness of mind. Gentleness is mildness, right? So humility and gentleness, patience. Patience is long-suffering or fortitude, meaning that even when it's difficult, I don't give up. I don't like what's happening. I don't give up. So he says, the walk that you're called to, okay, right? This is what it looks like. It's humility. It's gentleness. It's patience, meaning that sometimes there are things that are happening in my walk that I'm not really, but long suffering. I have fortitude, meaning I'm going to press through. I am not going to just give up. Bearing, right? That is, again, enduring. That means that sometimes I've got a burden that's on me, but I'm going to carry it. Love is an affection or benevolence. And this one's really important because we have inside of Scripture multiple types of love, love demonstrated in different ways. The world today redefines love as being exclusively something that is uh, built around intimacy, sexuality, and, and we know innately that that doesn't work right? And so the idea, and I say it regularly, that love is love is not true, 
right? There is, there is something about the way that we love different people, but there is a baseline for it, and this is that baseline, that agape love in Scripture, and it is an affection, a benevolence. It is a willingness to show up. It is a willingness to be engaged in the difficult part of the process. Verse 3, he says, you're walking this thing out, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is such a good verse, I believe, for the church. Eager to maintain the unity. What is the unity? The unity here is oneness. What does oneness look like? Oneness is, is one. It means fighting to figure out how to get into a place of one mind, one heart, so that our actions, our efforts, our momentum are not tugging against each other, but are working towards the same goal. And so, does that, does that mean that we just are doing it? No, it says eager to maintain. So there are going to be times where there's going to be some division, right? But our goal, our effort, our walk is about bringing it back together and saying, like, ultimately, we have to be in one heart and one mind. And he'll get to what that is in a moment. So, um, but it's not just unity, all right? Like, meaning that we all agree that it's exactly, this is what we think about, but it's unity of the Spirit, right? And so this is oneness in the Spirit, oneness. And, and the word here for Spirit is breath, right? The breath of God. So when God makes Adam and he's got this lifeless form sitting there, the Scripture says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That was the pneuma, this breath of God that came in. When we look here in the New Testament and we see the word Spirit, we are looking at the exact same thing. There is that breath of God that was breathed into Adam has been released onto the, the world, and that breath is in us, right? And so it is through the leading and guiding of God, through the very breath of God, that we are to operate in unity for, for what? In the bond of peace, right? And listen, this was interesting to me as well. Peace, by definition, was prosperity. When there is a time of peace, there is prosperity that comes with it. Peace does not bring suffering. Peace does not take you backwards. Peace carries you forward. And so Paul using this here in, in, in his, in his uh, layout for how we are to be walking, we are to be unified. So he's making references. He's beginning to talk about the importance of coming together, right? So he's been talking about them individually in the first half. Now he says that you are to be, you, are e you should be eager to be unified for what? Because of peace. Peace will bring prosperity, right? So we're going to be eager to come together, walking this thing out. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So there is one body. That body is the church. There is one body of Christ, and throughout the entirety of the New Testament, whenever it's talking about the body of Christ, it is talking about the church. And just so you understand, that is us. That, that, is, that is us right here, right now. And that is our brothers and sisters that have met already in Kenya. In fact, some of them are online possibly right now. Very regularly, they message me saying, hey, we did church this morning, and it's late afternoon in Kenya, and we're watching City Church online. We, from Kenya to Savannah, 
are the church. We are one body, and we have to keep that in mind. And when we are talking about the struggle, and sometimes the struggle is real, we have to be really careful to remember that the struggle might not be exactly the same for the body that is right here in Savannah, Georgia, that it is for what's happening in Nairobi, Kenya. And you say, well, you know, how how can you justify that? Let me tell you something. On my body, there are times where I will hurt my hand, and the struggle is real for my hand, but my foot is perfectly fine. And I remind my kids of this all the time, right? Oh, my hand hurts. Yeah, but you still have two feet. (laughs) And one good hand, right? And so innately we get this, and that's why this is the imagery that's being used is so that it makes sense to us. So which is his body? Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, I think this was verse 18. I didn't put it in there on accident, but uh, just which is his body? The fullness of him who fills all in all. This was back at the beginning. Paul was talking about the church, right? That That we are his body and that that is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Like this is that we are meant to be something that from the outside people are looking in going there. God's at work in that place right? And when we are divided, right, the the people from the outside are looking going, I don't want anything to do with that, right? Now, there are always going to be people who look from the outside and want things their way, but we have to remember that that is the minority of people. That is the smallest percentage. Most people are just out there looking around trying to figure out what's real, what's true, and this is why it's all the more important for us to be unified, right? And, uh, and one spirit, the spirit of Christ. And so when he says, and, and one spirit, so we're one body and one spirit, that is the spirit of Christ in the body by which all the members live and act. So that breath of God that is in Adam, that breath of God is the breath that is in this body of believers, right? And that is why we can expect to come together on Sunday morning in a time of worship and encounter God's presence. My kids got back from camp, and my uh, oldest was telling me about a young man who was making a statement uh, about, uh, about the environment of worship, Right? that there is something unique and different about the environment of worship. The reason that there can be something different and unique about the environment of worship is because it is in that moment that we are unified in one voice and that God's spirit becomes manifest. That's why it's different. It's why you don't experience it when you're at the grocery store the same way that you do when you're among a group of people who are in one heart, one accord, singing and lifting their voices to heaven. I remember years ago, uh, I had a, uh, um, I was in Bible college actually, and uh, I had made uh, a friend with this guy. His name is Brian and he didn't, uh, he didn't go to school with me, but we went to church together. Uh, no, we worked together, and he didn't go to church with me at the time. And we went on a uh, trip down to Florida, and there was a series of church services, uh, revival, if you will, taking place at this church called Brownsville in Florida. Some of you might be familiar with it. And uh, while we were all kind of on a vacation down there, uh, I had wanted to go and check it out, and because I had heard that God was doing some things there, and I wanted to see what it was about. And uh, so he said he'd go with me. 
and we went, and he had grown up in church, but had, ne- had, had not grown up in an environment where worship was something you engaged in, right? There were some songs you sang out of the hymn. Everybody held a hymn, hymnal in their hand. They read the words, you know, in a song fashion, closed them, and moved on, right? And so um, we waited in line for like six hours. That's how many people wanted to get into this place, right? And so we got there early. We were told to get there early. We brought our lunch. We sat outside. We got, when they opened the doors, we came in, ma- massive building. And the place was packed. And we were way up in the peanut gallery on the balcony of the balcony. And worship began, and they began singing. And uh, people all over the place were singing, one heart, one accord, hands lifted. People were praising God. And uh, he's standing there and, and looking around, and I'm like, hey, what's wrong? And he was like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, what's, what's going on? And I said, I said, look, just close your eyes and think about Jesus. Think about the cross. Think about the sacrifice, and, 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 and don't, don't sweat it. Like, just, just focus on him for a moment. And so Brian was like, all right. So he turned, and I'm watching him out of the corner of my eyes, and he closes his eyes, and I watch over the next five minutes this huge smile begin to come over his face. And from that moment, everything in Brian's life transformed. And Brian ultimately, like, uh, is, you know, today, I mean, he's uh, li- got a loving family, uh, raising them all to know Jesus, to love Jesus. He teaches and leads community groups at his church. And, uh, but, and it's not because he wasn't a believer before, but he had not encountered that, that spirit that should be in the church. He had not encountered that. And when he encountered it, it changed everything for him. It changed everything for him. And so there's something that is significant when we are in, and we are in one spirit, when we allow the spirit of God, the breath of God to do its thing. So for in one spirit, uh, going to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we were all as believers baptized into one spirit. So just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one inheritance in heaven to the one to the hope of which ye are called. You have a calling on your life. Look here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So there is a hope that is laid up for you, and you begin to know that hope when you are experiencing the Spirit of God. And a lot of times when people come to me and they say, man, I just, things, I'm, it's hopeless right now. Like, I feel disconnected. I don't know what's going on. A lot of times that, that, not all the time, but a lot of times that is because there is a disconnect from the Spirit of God. There is a disconnect in their lives. So going back to Ephesians chapter 4, look here in verse 5. One Lord. So he's laying these things out. There's one of these things, right? One, one, one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So when he talks about one Lord, this is the Redeemer, the head. This is the husband of the church. This is the imagery that Scripture uses to whom by God's appointment she is immediately subject. And so we, the church, are submitted to him, the head of the church, right? So that's, that's one Lord, right? One faith. This is the doctrine of salvation. And this is something that Paul is He's, he, he gets the fact that this is 
heavily abused, so he's constantly coming back to this idea of one faith. He says, there's one way to be saved, one way, and there's no added components to it. It is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Don't add anything to this. Don't take anything away from this, right? Right? Don't, 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 don't try to manipulate it. There is one faith. So he's laying out the doctrine for the church here. One baptism, both the outward symbol and that signified by it, meaning that something different is inside of me. There, I have made a change. It is outward, it is inward. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what is one God? God is the Father, right? One God, one Father. Not multiple. There's not a bunch of different gods to go and look at. There is one Father. And, and here's the thing. In your life, regardless of, of, of how you might hear this presented, biologically, you have one daddy. All right? There was one. And you have one mom. So there is one God, there is one Father, there is one Creator of all things. That is essential to the doctrine of the church. Father of all, every believer, He is the one Father, the one God, the one Creator of every single one of us who call Jesus King, who is over all, not only in His nature, but in his sovereign dominion over the church. So God isn't just over, uh, over all because that's who God is, right? But he is over the church and we are submitted to it, right? I mean, you think about it. Uh, uh, if you go back into some of the time of kings, right? You had two groups of people, people who were happy with the king, people who were unhappy with the king, right? And the people who were happy with the king, they were subject to the king. And the people who were unhappy were subject to the king. And so this imagery here for us is that God is, yes, he is sovereign over all, but there is a dominion that we submit ourselves to in the church, allowing him to be sovereign without that having to be mandated. And through all, through all the members of the church. That means that God, the Spirit of God is throughout the members of the church, right? And in all. And this is accomplished by inhabitation. What does that mean? We just talked about it last week. He talks about Jesus being inside of us, that we allow the Spirit of God to take up residency in us. Meaning that, and, we, and I use this illustration of Psalm 139 where David says, Lord, even so search me, see if there's anything wicked in me. Because the truth is, is in order for God to be able to be manifest inside of us, we have to have a place that is willing to allow God to permanently dwell. And last week I talked about the fact that there is a difference between being a guest, being a visitor, or being a resident. Is the Spirit of God a resident in your life or a guest in your life? Meaning that when it is convenient or when you are in the right group of people, then you are spiritual and you allow the Spirit of God to do what it wants to do? Or is the Spirit of God welcome in those moments when things are probably darker than you would like to admit? 
And this is what it means inside the church that we teach the fact that God, that the Spirit of God is in all of us. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So grace was given. Uh, This is by grace, he means gifts which are not common to all believers, but proper to some according to their various functions and places in the church. So what he could mean here is that when it says by grace um, that, that we have these gifts, is that each of us receives something that is unique or, okay, or it comprehends also those graces which are common to all believers uh, as such faith, hope, love, zeal, which though they are of the same kind in all and have the same object, they are received in different degrees and measures. And so uh, reading through commentaries, looking at what scholars are saying, there's a little bit of a disagreement here. Some think that these, gra- these gifts of grace are unique to all of us, and some think, no, 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 no there's, a, there's a certain type of gifts that exist, and they are given in different measurements. Either way, you are equipped inside of the church. The grace of God equips you to be effective to be able to do what? To do that walking that he's talking about, to be able to live the way that he's talking about. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So he's making a reference here to Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So this is an allusion to the custom of conquerors casting money among the people that were the spectators of their triumphs or giving gifts to their soldiers. And so there was this practice where if a if a battle took place, whoever won, that leader would come out and they would give money to everybody who watched, okay? And then maybe special gifts to their soldiers. And and this is this imagery that that uh, Paul is giving is that as the Holy Spirit is victorious and the Holy Spirit is always victorious, we receive those gifts that come from the victory, the spoils, if you will. And so he uses this analogy. Let's go back here to uh, Ephesians 4 verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So his ascension was made complete because it was preceded by death. This is the thing that separates this body from any other secret society, group of people that could ever meet, religious, whatever, around the world. We don't just believe that our God, has, that Jesus ascended or that God God reigns on high. We believe that by the testimony of those that visibly saw it, that physically touched his dead body and his risen body, that Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended. And a lot of times, like we we get, we and I'm not trying to be negative here, but we talk a lot about the, the resurrection and we don't get this entire picture, right? That he has ascended and he is soon returning. And that's our hope that Jesus is returning. And so, yeah, it makes us sound crazy to people from the outside. The idea that Jesus is going to return and establish a new earth and a new kingdom. 
Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So we are filled because he descended and is ascended. Because he did that, this is why the other quote-unquote gods of the earth and the other faiths of the earth, like there's nothing that is happening inside of those people and through those people because there was nothing released by their lives. But because Jesus paid the price, the Holy Spirit was released on us. And so individually we have the Holy Spirit and corporately we have the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. I want to pause on this for a brief moment. Who are the apostles? These are extraordinary officers with an immediate call, universal commission, infallibility in teaching, and power of working miracles, appointed for the first founding, uh, for the for the first founding the Christian church in all parts of the world. So the apostles were the group of people who were laying out doctrine, starting churches all over the world, leading those churches, and signs and wonders followed them. Do I believe there are apostles today? I do believe there are apostles today. Do I believe there are false apostles today? I believe there are a lot of people that want the title that comes with whatever they want it to be. And so some people grab the title apostle and they'll use the title apostle. But I'm going to tell you something. When we look at the biblical definition, the manner in which these people live their lives, we should always be able to apply that to somebody who has grabbed that title. It'll be the same for all of these prophets. These were extraordinary officers who did by immediate revelation interpret the scriptures. And, let's, and I'm going to be clear here. Like most of the time when we talk about prophets inside of scripture, the majority, not all the time, the majority of them are actually interpreting prophetically scripture that was already in the lives of people. They were bringing clarity and understanding to what the word meant. And then there were also groups of people who were prophets and that they would speak directly into people's lives. That inside of Scripture is not the norm, though. That is not, it, when we read about the prophets, it wasn't like there were lots of people going around telling, reading people's fortune. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament, there was a lot of that going on and they were totally wrong and God rebuked and condemned that. Okay? When we look at the time of Ezekiel, when we look at the time of Jeremiah, like both of them are writing about the fact that there are grave consequences for the fact that there are people going around calling themselves prophets and prophesying things that were not true, right? And then, and then when we look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel as prophets, right? And, and remember, the New Testament church doesn't have 2,000 years of people calling themselves prophets in the church. When they're talking about prophets, they are talking about what their understanding of a prophet is, right? And so when Jeremiah and Ezekiel are prophesying, they, a lot of times they are prophesying as it is written, right? As it is written. So a, the majority of the time when we see a prophet, they are going to be people who are, and if they are active today, they're going to be engaged in the Scripture, in the Word of God, and they're not going to be separated from it, all right? Evangelists. Uh, these were likewise extraordinary officers, for the most part chosen by the apostles as their companions and assistants in preaching the Word and planting churches in the several places uh, where they traveled. So the evangelists were people who were helping to proclaim the good news, okay? They were submitted to an apostle. And then, uh, or I see people trying to take pictures. I'll go back. Go ahead. 
and then uh, we're going to jump over to pastors and teachers. Now, this one was really interesting to me because I've always looked at this as the five-fold ministry being taught this way, but uh, the way that this is written in the Greek, a lot of scholars actually believe that it's only four offices and that that, that, that one that we see at the end is actually tethered together, pastors and teachers. And, and I'm not going to tell you definitively that I believe this or don't believe this, but it makes sense to me, and this is why. Because, um, so pastors and teachers, either two names of the same office implying the distinct duties of leading and teaching, or two distinct offices of standing in the church at, that are standing in the church at all times. The problem for me is that I see myself as a teacher. I love to go verse by verse through Scripture, right? But I'm a pastor, meaning that I shepherd and I show up and I deal with the hard conversations. And when there's a car wreck, I'm at the hospital. And when a baby is born, I'm cheering and I'm excited. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's all the pastoral duties that come in there, but I'm also teaching. It's like, like how, do you, how do you manage that, right? Because most of the time when you meet an evangelist, somebody that, that that's kind of their gifting, you're like, yeah, that's, that's where they function. But in this, it's a little bit confusing. And so a lot of scholars believe that based on the way that it's written in the Greek, that this is actually one office where you are shepherding and teaching simultaneously, which I really feel like describes me the most. All right, so why, he says he has given these, these offices over, right? Okay, call them titles, I call them offices. For what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why? Why are we here? The leaders, to equip, to equip, not to do the work, right? Not to do the work, to equip so that is to restore and bring believers into the right order. So when people come in and become believers, the responsibility that sets on me is to help create an understanding of sound doctrine, right? And to lead them into a place where they are loving the Word, understanding the Word, and becoming a light in the darkness. Now, I just want to say this. If you as an individual, right, uh, find yourself thinking like, that's what I want to be doing, you may have a call to be a pastor on your life. A lot of times there are people with a call on their lives and they don't submit to that call and they show up in church and they create friction because they don't submit to the, the, the pastoral leadership of the church because they themselves may have a call on their lives. They could be in rebellion too, but they may have a call on their lives that they have not been uh, uh, obedient to, and so it creates friction. Listen, I have a responsibility to, to teach the Word of God and hopefully to get you hungry for the Word of God, right? For what purpose? For the work of ministry. And this is the, this is the flipping it on the head uh, moment for us, right? The church does not operate by the pastor doing all the ministry. My job, right, my job is to equip the saints, the body, for the work of ministry, to go out and do the work. And what is the work of ministry? Well, the New Testament authors believe that the work of ministry was the distribution of the Word of God because they didn't believe that anything had more power than the Word of God. This is why Paul will reference the book of Psalms, right? He'll reference it. Why? Because he believes 
that the Scripture is authoritative, that it is authentic, that it is God's Word. And so they believed that the distribution of the Word was the best thing that could happen. Like if somebody would actually read the Word of God, that they would actually study the Word of God, it would do more for them than any amount of preaching and screaming and hollering and backflips and pyrotechnics that we could ever do in a person's soul. And so the, the goal that that I have is to help you distribute the Word. For what purpose? For building up the body of Christ, both bringing in new members and strengthening those that have already been brought in. And so I love it. I love it when I see you guys on fire and you're bringing people in and you are beginning the process in their lives of trying to help mentor and disciple. And, and, you're do, and I know it's difficult because they'll come in, maybe there's something they don't like, maybe there's something that doesn't make sense, and it, it's a process, like a yo-yo of getting them to come back again, and then they, they're not here for a week, and then they're back again. Like, I, I understand all of that, because why? Because there is a enemy seeking to whom he may devour. And so you cannot believe for one moment that, that Jesus is resurrected, ascended, and soon returning and not believe that there is also an enemy that wants to keep people from knowing him. And for what? Building up the body of Christ. And what is the body of Christ? We established this already. It is the church. For building up the church. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So until, until when? Well, this was laid out for us. Once Jews and believers are united in the faith. What does that mean? When Jesus returns. All right? So when when Jesus returns, that's how long we're going to be doing this church thing. Right? Okay? That's how long we're going to be doing this work in the church. We're going to continue to be the church, but the the work that we're doing will take place until Jesus returns. It says here, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So we're going to do the work to help people become mature. Well, what does mature mean, right? Because that was something, too, that I was thinking about because we talk a lot about maturity, right? My, my kids use that language, too. They're like, well, you know, they're just kind of immature or I'm more mature than they are. And we kind of just kind of toss this word maturity around, right? And then we just auto-give it to some people, right? It's like, oh, I mean, they're 22. Their car hasn't been repossessed. They're mature, you know what I'm saying, right? Okay, what does it mean? It is to be complete. To be complete. Now, what does complete look like? Well, th- th- that, that is really the, the, the question that we should have. Because, you see, there, are, there's, there is plenty of Scripture that helps us understand what a man or a woman should look like in their lives right? When it comes to sexuality, when it comes to uh, finances, when it comes to uh, the company we keep, right? When those things are complete, as Scripture is talking about, it means that we have taken what the Word of God says to be true, and we have said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to live by that standard, right? Right? And then when I mess up, because let me tell you something, we, we mess up, okay, all right, I'm going to step back to that standard. And here's the problem. We allow those who are immature to claim maturity by simply redefining completion. 
This is what happens, and it's happening in our nation right now. We allow people to, to redefine what it looks like to be complete and be whole, and therefore, they meet the new standard, and they can claim maturity, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more mature than you are. I understand things better than you do. And it's like, no, 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 whose standard are we going by here, right? So, in case you were thinking, uh, Pastor Jim, you're just being eccentric. You're just, you're always reading in. You watch too much news, right? Okay, Paul refines this for us. And this is why I love Paul, right? Paul makes a statement, and then he does the same thing I do. He, he's very strategic. He goes, I know exactly what your argument's going to be, right? I know exactly how you're going to twist these words to be. So I'm going to make my statement, and then I'm going to kind of seal it up to kind of narrow your escape path, right? Okay, so what does he do? This is where we'll wrap up. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Have you ever watched a kid in the waves of the ocean? right? There is a reason why we do not let a two-year-old go into the ocean by themselves on a day when the waves are just crashing, right? Right? I mean, my, my youngest is nine, and I don't let him, when the waves are crashing, go out in the water by himself, right? Because I understand the innate risk that exists when those waves are, being, are, are crashing over and the water underneath is pulling back out to sea. And so Paul says it's like, like this, this picture of children just being tossed around and they aren't, what, maybe strong enough, right? But wise enough to be able to be safe? I mean, because that's really part of it, right? I mean, you, you hear stories of people getting swept out to sea, and they are strong, good swimmers, right? Because it's more than just physical attributes that keep you from being swept out to sea. It's also being aware of your surroundings. And in order to be aware of your surroundings, you've got to know something about your surroundings, right? And this is why what every... Uh, pedophile and lunatic on the planet takes advantage of. They are looking for people who don't know how to tell the signs. Every creepo on the internet, every weirdo that's out there that is looking to do something devious and evil, they are hoping that you are unaware. You see, that's a picture of maturity is when you begin to understand, hey, there's a reason there's two red flags on that lifeguard stand right now because it is not safe. And it doesn't matter how strong a swimmer you are, it might not be enough. So the mature person says, we'll hit the waves tomorrow. Come on, kids, let's go get ice cream, right? But the person who's not mature says, oh, I got this, I'm, I'm a great swimmer, you know? I can touch the bottom of the pool in the 12-foot section, I got it, I'm good. And what does he say? This is really, really, this, man, this got me. I, I gotta tell you. Um, to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, so there's a little statement, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. So you have these, these, these breakdowns here. I just want to focus on deceitful schemes because I think it kind of sums it up really nice. So this word, uh, to deceit, is straying from orthodoxy or fraudulent. 
So Paul says that there is an orthodoxy. There is a standard, right? And so when the church is moving in this direction, right? So, so we have a faith that's moving in this direction. When things begin to stray, right? Th- that's a sign that things might not be okay, right? And, and we see this happen throughout the 2,000 years of existence of the church. And it's, it's happen, happening right now where various things are being said, right, that stray from orthodoxy. But, but this, is the, this is the part here, I, pr- I promise I'm about to wrap up, um, is d- deceitful scheming, methods or movements. Okay, so I was thinking to myself about this, and I was like, well, that's planned, right? Like, like there's, a, there's somewhere, there's an organization and I think to myself, like, okay, as soon as you say that there is some group of people who are intentionally doing something bad, that brings out another group of people who begin to scream, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorists, they're crazy, right? And, and, and you think, like, oh, man, I don't want to be lumped into that, right? I mean, I don't, maybe, maybe you don't care, right? But my, and my initial feeling a lot of times is, like, I don't want to be in the middle of that argument and that debate. But then I was, uh, I was flipping through uh, looking for something to watch the other day, and there was a documentary on the opioid crisis. And it's held as being, you know, a great documentary. I don't know. How, they gave it a bunch of awards from a bunch of people that give out awards. I don't keep up with it. And the whole premise was that the pharmaceutical companies knew what they were doing. They were burying information, they were not allowing certain reports to come out, and they were pushing their drugs nonetheless, right? And those stories come out, and what do we do? Oh, man, no doubt, right? And then they get taken to court, and they lose, right? There's some huge settlement that's having to be paid out because of the the lies and the deceit. So when it comes to something, right, that is like the opioids, and the lid is just blown off of it, we'll all go, oh yeah, there was a cover-up. There was some conniving, and there were people who knew what they were doing, and they were, playing, they were deceitful schemers. And that's the same language, that's the same idea that Paul's communicating here. You need to understand that there is a spirit at work that is not for you. When we get to chapter 6 in here, he'll talk about it. He says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, right? There are rulers and overseers in a, in a dimension that you and I don't have daily access to that are at work. There is an intentional effort being made to keep the church from being unified. Is he saying this to a group of people that are given over to witchcraft and idolatry? He is not. That's what makes it so relevant, is I'm not trying to chastise or or condemn you going like, oh man, the church is in a big mess in here right now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to know, though, that it can happen and that it does happen. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So what is this picture of maturity? It is understanding that there is an enemy at work that there will be lies and deceit. We become aware of that, and what do we do? We speak the truth in love. And this is where we have to, we have to marry the beginning of his, of his uh, uh, expectations here with the end, is that we are about love and peace and gentleness and humility, and we do not cower from the truth. I'm going to tell you, the truth creates conflict, right? It does sometimes. Sometimes when you speak truth, there are people who do not want to hear it. And, and, and the the, the reason is 
you can't have unity without speaking truth, and the loving thing to do is to speak truth, but the problem that we have is that truth is not relative. And today, there is a mindset that my truth might not be your truth. And so you need to respect my truth. And, and, I, and here's, what, here's what I'm trying to lay out for you, is that that is not loving. And that's why I say that like we can't grab onto a terminology like love is love, because it's not. It's not. Because the love that the world is wanting is just like, hey, just keep your mouth shut and agree or else. And that's not what Scripture teaches us. So we have to be unified in here, right? We've got to be the example. We've got to embody peace. We've got to embody kindness and humility. We've got to embody all those things. And we have to speak the truth in love, in love, gracious, because we care, but we speak the truth. Look at what it says here in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what's so incredible about the truth, is it sets us free. So if you have a deceitful, scheming enemy that wants to keep you from experiencing freedom, then it would do so by not allowing you to experience truth, because in truth, there is freedom. And there's nothing that I can think of that is more loving and caring than to help somebody walk in freedom. And I'm going to end here in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the whole body? The whole body is all of us. All of us, the church. The whole body joined and held together by every joint from Kenya to Iran. I know I've said this, but if you don't know, one of the fastest growing populations of Christians in the world right now is in Iran. China, the underground church, just thriving, okay, right? The people who are in, under heavy persecution from those places all the way to right here in Savannah, join, Savannah, Georgia, that by every joint with which it is equipped, we have, and we are equipped, we are capable of doing what's needed right here in this place. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's stand to our feet. I want to say this to you, that we have to be loving and kind, but we have to speak the truth because sometimes silence is violence. When you don't speak the truth, you potentially allow somebody to be subjected to the incredible hate that the enemy has. And one day, one day, some will be drawn to Jesus and some will be separated for eternity. We want people to be connected to him. Amen? Amen. We are the church. Let us be unified. Let us be in one accord. Let us do the, the difficult things sometimes of sitting down and working things out. Let us not abandon the faith. Let us not abandon each other. Don't, this idea of like, oh, I've been hurt by the church, so I don't do church. Like, that's, that's not the doctrine of the church. That's not the doctrine of the church. We are to work it out, sort it out, because the world needs the body. 
The world needs the body. Listen, if you're in this place and you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, our prayer ministry team is going to be available in the back to connect with you. If you are far from God, disconnected, whatever it is, we want to pray with you. If you're sick in body, we want to pray for you. Um, If you are in just a place where you're struggling emotionally, please allow us to be engaged in the process there of conversation, of healing, whatever that looks like. Amen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for every opportunity we have to come together. Thank you for your word that speaks truth to our lives. Lord, we want to be that church, joined together and effective for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, have your way in our lives. Be manifest and help us to grow to a place of completion, of maturity, to where we are a reflection of who you are. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you midweek online and next Sunday, as always, go change your world.